Coming up this hour, is Jeff Bezos about to become the world's first trillionaire? And then we're going to talk about evangelism and which way do you like to evangelize the most? That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you join us. The sun is out. The weekend's upon us. We are glad to have you with us, Ian. Friday, I know you love Fridays like I do. This is going to be a good day. Oh, big, big fan of Fridays. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for wishing your wife a happy birthday first or not. Please do. Please do. It is her birthday. Happy birthday, Carrie. It is. And uh, yeah, we we have this run of birthdays. So this is the last one in our family here. But uh, I mean, you're uh, probably going to have more. Okay, the run of May birthdays. I should. Your good point. I should have clarified there. Uh, this run of May birthdays, but yes, today is my lovely wife's birthday, so it is a day full of celebrating. Ironically, it is also National Pizza Party Day, and all she wanted today for her birthday was pizza because that is her love language. So it really, all things are coming up roses for Carrie Fromm today. Yeah, if that wasn't providential, I don't know what is. Uh, the third one is National Chocolate Chip Day which is also her love for chocolate chip cookies. Uh, it's a little strange. I it's I got to be honest. It's it's a little strange when all of those things were lined up today. And uh, yeah, it's been a big day in our house. Between, but, you know, biggest thing being the birthday, uh, my daughter taking her online AP history exam as we speak. Nice. And uh, which is weird, like it's all online and they can it's open book, but it's timed and all this kind of stuff, obviously. Yep. And uh, I told you off air, I finally received a little uh, a little letter from Donald J. J. Trump in the form of a stimulus check today. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good Friday in the From House today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I am I am celebrating right right there with you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we're glad to have you join us. Hey, let me remind you, Facebook Common Good Radio Show on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com and our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe or rate. <laughs> And review. Now, the story I wanted to start with today, uh, and then I think I got caught a little bit, so I put it in our rundown. Uh, You might have seen going around on Twitter, even Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders weighed in on it. There was an article going around that Jeff Bezos is about to become the world's first trillionaire. Uh, and then Vox.com at Vox, they put up a follow article saying, no, it's not exactly true. Although then they said, if Amazon continues, on its current trajectory, uh, Jeff Bezos will be a trillionaire within five years. Uh, I don't have any deep question for you, except isn't that the most mind-boggling thing that there could be one person who's a, possibly a trillionaire? I mean, it's already mind-boggling to me that there are billionaires, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could, if you wanted to, we could really delve into the uh, the Go ethics, the ethics of billionaires. You, yep. you uh, do you want to make a case that there it's not actually ethical for anyone to have a billion dollars? Do I want to make the case that it's mm. not ethical? I would like you to make that case. Oh, I, I don't think, think anyone wants to hear that. I want to hear Brian Fry. I, let me just ask you: do you do you find any moral slash social discomfort at the very least at the fact of various individuals? owning or being worth i mean we have to you know they don't it's not like they have a billion dollars in a bank account right. somewhere right. Uh, right but being worth a billion or more dollars does that does that strike you as in any way irreconcilable with your ethic uh 
do I have the billion dollars? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, to, I should have known. I should have guessed. If you found a billion dollars on the road, <laughs> <laughs> I personally uh, do have a problem with it. It is with with the disparity of people uh, who struggle to put food on the table and that kind of stuff. It is just uh, a it it is uh, it is difficult to justify very uh, small number of people having that much of the money. What that means governmentally and systems, I don't quite know. But yes, uh, ethically, uh, if if uh, somebody if billionaires are hard to justify, and so are trillionaires. How about yourself? Tell yeah. me what you think. I I can't justify it. That's not just because I'm nowhere near any of that category, and I'm not even. <laughs> anti-wealth i just think right. Uh, right. again morally ethically speaking there is just no moral way in my opinion for someone to quote earn a billion dollars it's not about mm. weight uh or wealth disparity even necessarily just the the oh, idea of what earning actually means or looks like and that's not to say that certain people haven't generated all sorts of really really important wealth but i i do have yeah, I mean, again, not an economist. I'm not even good at math, to be honest. So, <laughs> you know, throwing all that out there, it doesn't uh, it doesn't sit great with me. Yeah. So you and I could really speak to the morality of being thousandaires, but we'll save that for another day. Yeah, barely. <laughs> uh, all right. The other thing I want to do in this first segment, uh, we've quoted Simon Sinek before. I wanted to read a leadership quote because I read it on Twitter from him, and then I just read it again. I was like, man, just trying to digest it. So I wanted to read it for you. I have not even told you what it is. Okay. Uh, and just kind of get, uh, give me your first blush to it because it's a great quote, but I, I want to flesh it out a little bit. Simon Sinek, uh, who, I said, who, again, I said we've uh, quoted on this show before, wrote this. He tweeted this, bad leaders care about who's right Good leaders care about what's right. Help us understand. Do you agree with this quote and help us to, to your knowledge? What do you think he's trying to say there? Can you say it again? Let me look that up one more time. He says bad leaders um, care about who's right. Good leaders care about what's right. Bad leaders care about who's right. Good leaders care about what's right. What do you what do you uh, think about when you hear that? What's uh, what's your understanding of that? All right. So it's Twitter. Right. So understanding the medium, the platform, Mm -hmm. you know, I saw someone railing on someone else on Twitter the other day for their statement, not having enough nuance. I'm like, it's Twitter. It's not it's not not built for nuance. He wasn't offering a lecture. Uh, And I I do tend to like Sinek a lot. And he's actually really good at some of these sort of soundbite things. I, I do think there are moments where a leader needs to determine who's right. I don't I don't think. Again, it's just a tweet, but to say bad leaders care about who's right, eh, sometimes who's right is actually really valuable and important. But I, I like the way that and he, he often does this, and there's all sorts of one-minute, two-minute clips we've shared on this show just because he's really good at kind of distilling things down. But again, part of what's tricky is I think everyone thinks that they're caring about what's right. I don't mm. know anyone, good or bad leader, who's like willingly – putting all their eggs in the basket of what they think is wrong or uh, what they think is morally questionable. So I I think it's a little tricky at times because part of the issue is like, yeah, but how how does that actually change people's thinking if they, if everyone thinks they're right in their own eyes, but I do think Mm. it's an important juxtaposition. It's not just about interpersonal back and forth, which we obviously see a lot of nowadays, but about what is the right course of action going forward. I think, I think it's a good quote. 
Yeah, I do too. And so uh, it, it is good leadership looks for what's right. And what I thought of when I read that quote, and it just stood out to me as I was perusing Twitter this morning, as you said, not much nuance on Twitter, but um, sometimes what's right is not the popular thing. And, and and that's where it becomes difficult in leadership, right? Like uh, going, no, I know what is the right thing to say here. What's the right thing to do uh, and I'm going to do it regardless of the consequences, I think, is solid leadership. And that's where leadership gets difficult. It's always easy to be the front runner where everyone's cheering. Right. Um, but uh, so a but good that, quote from that's Simon. Kind of, that's kind of what leadership is. Like, I remember a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine who was leading the church for the first time. And he was kind of I mean, it was a legitimate lament. He was he was just sort of sharing. He said something like, I'm tired of people being mad at me. And I said, wow, oh, there's, a, there's a solution for that. Uh, don't be in leadership like that. That mm. is, I think, and maybe you would disagree. That's an inescapable part of leadership. Sometimes right. people are going to not just disagree with you. They're going to be upset with the decision that you made or rubber stamped. And that is not for the faint of heart, man. That, that I'll right. tell you what, being on the receiving end of some emails and comments over the years, that that is certainly tough. And I, and I think that for a lot of people that it becomes kind of the barometer, like, oh, I'd rather not have people be mad at me. Yeah. And uh, there is a there is a solution to that. <laughs> <laughs> Very well put. That's really well put. Well, coming up next, speaking of leadership, uh, David Brooks at The New York Times wrote uh, this opinion piece. Ordinary people are leading the leaders. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really happy to have you joining us on a beautiful, sunny Friday afternoon. Again, as we said in the first hour, happy birthday to my lovely wife. And uh, so big day of celebrating in our house. Hope you're having a great Friday, or if you're listening on the podcast, whenever you're listening to this, hope you are enjoying your day. Find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com. Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's also our Instagram handle. And uh, Ian is going to start a TikTok soon for the show, I believe. So we're excited no one, for that. No one wants that. That's a uh, <laughs> How old are we? Here's our TikTok. <laughs> uh, and as we mentioned, the podcast. Get the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we're really grateful for those of you uh, who do that. Well, uh, I, I enjoy reading David Brooks. At the New York Times, uh, he is one of the opinion writers. I know, like a good opinion writer, people usually uh, really agree with them or really disagree with them. And that's what makes for a good opinion columnist. So he wrote an opinion article yesterday entitled this. Ordinary people are leading the leaders. America looks better from the bottom up. Let me read some of this and then Ian will react to it. Here we go. He says, we've entered the endurance phase of this pandemic. We're slowly mastering this disease, but we have not yet done so. And so we wait and endure. Hmm. Endurance is patience. It is shortening your time horizon. So you just have to get through this day. Endurance is living with unpleasantness. In fact, it is finding you can adapt and turn the strangest circumstances into routine. Endurance is fortifying. It is discovering you can uh, get socked in the nose and take it. But above all, endurance is living with uncertainty. Sometimes it's remaining quiet in the face of uncertainty because no conjecture will tell you what is coming. Endurance is the knowledge that the only way out is through and whatever you must be born, uh, whatever must be born will be born. 
he says those of us in his profession are not good at being quiet in the face of uncertainty. It's sort of a career ender. Uh, so I've noticed a vast chasm opening up uh, between the information and opinion I get online and the information and opinion I get from conversations I have with people over Zoom. So he's that's going to be the point of the rest of this. It is seeing the difference between what's being reported uh, and what he's hearing. So let me finish this off. Twitter has never been real life. But now Twitter and a lot of the surrounding commentary are basically the opposite of real life. In the first place, online is very political. Uh, people see the world through political categories. But on Zoom, most of the conversations about coping. According to Gallup, Americans are experiencing the sharpest drop in perceived well-being on record. So what you hear about in random conversations is the elementary school principal trying to find an apartment and beds for one of his students. It's people saying how much more active their churches and synagogues have gotten in maintaining community. Uh, if there was ever an age of self-sufficiency, it's not now. Second, online gives you the impression that America is bitterly divided. We in my profession primarily cover conflict online is the place where partisans go to be partisan. But in real life, America is less divided than it was before the pandemic. Hmm. In a Washington Post survey, only 16% of Americans say that their state's opening up uh, isn't opening up fast enough. Three quarters say we need to keep slowing the disease, even if it means businesses staying closed. Uh, Americans in red and blue states are staying home at nearly exactly the same rates. Uh, there's little correlation between whether a state is red or blue and how it's doing fighting the disease. Third, People online have a certain and dogmatic opinions about what we should do now. And he gives opinions of that. But he says in real life, people are less dogmatic, just trying to feel their way towards the future. Uh, so he ends it by saying online humility is rare. People trained in the art of rigid ideology aren't doing well with a disease that is so mysterious and seemingly random. I'm worried that the polarization industry's false narrative of division and conflict will turn self-serving. Let me stop there. There's a lot there, Ian, but his whole point is basically what you're reading online and seeing in the news and hearing from the talking heads is actually the opposite of what's going on in our country with people day to day. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily say that it's the opposite, but it's certainly uh, inflamed. I think it's exacerbated. And I think that we've talked about this before, that media is not even really secretive about that being the case. I think we've long known that like, yeah, the most dramatic or the most polarizing is the thing that gets the most clicks or the most shares or the most traffic. Like I completely understand that. But you remember like it's like a year ago we did a story. There was a, a group called more in common and they were conducting a poll to see how far off right was from predicting the left and vice versa That's with right. regards to like what they valued and yes. the gap was massive heading both directions. So, so in in essence, they were the left was terrible at guessing how the right would vote or what they were convicted by and vice versa, which for me was super fascinating because it wasn't just like, well, yeah, one side was really bad at guessing the other. But the first side was, you know, what I mean, like it was lopsided on both ends. And I love I love the way he ends this. He says the pandemic has revealed the rot in many of our political dogmas and institutions. Mm but also a greater humanity, a deeper compassion in the face of suffering and a hidden solidarity, which I at least did not know was there, which is mm. a, a powerful way to end an article like this, because I appreciate his humility. And it's something that you and I, I think 
hope for. You hope that we aren't the sum of what we see on the news or on Twitter. And I, I feel like I've been seeing more and more people as of late making comments on Twitter like, hey, I'm logging off for the week. I just can't handle yep, yep. the chaos or the constant negativity. I, I guess I'm just not on it enough to feel that weight necessarily. But the fact that Twitter or Facebook isn't an accurate representation of us feels like something that should be obvious. But in this like highly digitized season we're in right now, I think it's easy to forget that. And I think this this article does a good job of sort of pulling back the curtain a little bit. It did get me thinking today, uh, right after I read this article, I talked to a friend who's down in Georgia right now. And if I if you asked me what's going on in Georgia right now, from just the news that I've seen, it would be like wild parties all over the street. They've opened everything up and they don't care about anything, you know? Right. And uh, he's like, man, it's it's not very different from where we are. People are being really careful. And he described what it was like in a restaurant where they're like clean in front of you and then clean after this. And they have two different servers. It was all this stuff. And you're like, oh, that's not the reporting I'm hearing, right? All right. I'm seeing is like all these people out here and we're swinging the doors open and uh, it does remind you that every news on both sides is biased and yeah. Twitter, especially uh, I hope, man, I could just be overly optimistic with this one. I really hope what Brooks is talking about, if underneath the surface, we're a lot more, um, you know, cohesive and together that there's more solidarity. I hope that we somehow as a culture figure out a way for that to rise to the top. Mm-hmm. I don't know even how that would happen, you know? Maybe a couple shows called like the common good, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. But like, if churches could lead the way, I don't even know who leads the way. But but it just the difference between what you hear and then what he's describing here is so stark. And I don't know what that way out, but I at least don't want to leave lose the optimism that maybe our culture can get back to that somehow. I, I honestly think the answer is in his headline: "Ordinary people are leading the leaders." I don't think it's about some big institution like being the whistleblower i think it's a grassroots like hey uh let's keep watching the news and we don't have to throw out our computers but let's yeah. commit ourselves to having real conversations with people who are actually in our neighborhood or actually in our church or actually in our community and i think the more and more we can encourage people to do that the better sense the better finger on the pulse that people will actually have of what's really going on yeah in their city in their neighborhood in their church and i mean apart from that because i think people are rightfully so suspicious of the megaphone messages. And I think to get back to grassroots conversations would be really, really helpful. Absolutely. So it's a great article. We'd encourage you to read it at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. Well, coming up uh, yesterday, we, uh, Ian and I started talking about evangelism and I wanted to bring up an article on Christianity today uh, that carries that conversation on that's coming up next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad that you're joining us on this Friday. Hope you have a a good weekend planned ahead of you, even though uh, we're still staying at home. Uh, Hopefully some nice weather and you're able to have some good family time uh, this weekend. As always, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Go to our Facebook page over this weekend. You know, you're outside, sitting in the sun. Head on over to The Common Good Facebook page. Uh, you can also get to our Twitter page and Instagram at Common Good Talk online, 1160hope.com, and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you to those who do podcast, and uh, we are grateful for you. So, uh, friend of the show, Ed Stetzer, 
he has been on a writing role this week, and we're going to talk about an article he wrote about evangelism uh, in Christianity Today. But before we do that, Ian is going to tell you about our friends at Thrivent. I would love to, Brian. So Ooh, I'm a, a Thrivent member L today. That's true. Good observation. I've been a Thrivent yep. member for a long time. Big, big fan of them and uh, their ethos, their entire approach to ministry and people and money. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. Also, like a lot of people, I know they're looking for a career change or maybe you find yourself out of work right now in general. Thrivent.com slash careers is a great, great, great place to go and just learn some more. Also, they've been putting together these really brilliant webinars. In fact, just like an hour ago, they hosted one with uh, Jim the Rookie Morris, and it was phenomenal. So I would encourage you, go like their Facebook page. We've been sharing them on our Facebook page, but you go to Thrivent Member Network Chicagoland Region. Um, but you can also like the main page and you'll see a lot of the same stuff there, but they've been providing a lot of content to help us navigate these really uncertain times. And uh, I can't encourage you enough to check them out. I can't thank them enough for what they've done, not only for our show, but for just people in general. And uh, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to go check them out. Absolutely. So not to put you on the spot, but do we know why his nickname is the rookie? Well, he's uh he was an athlete, athlete, oh, he author, teacher, and inspirational speaker. Okay. Right here, his journey is a testimony to the power of dreams and their ability to inspire and transform human life. So, uh, he also made his like cinematic history with the release of The Rookie, starring Dennis Quaid. So there it is. Okay, okay. Well, see, you have an answer for everything. That was good. I was like, hey, there's no true. way he knows. Yeah, don't don't send that out in the ether. I do not have an answer for hardly anything. <laughs> he is the answer man. Oh boy. He's the- at Christianity Today, uh, Ed Stetzer, who's been on the show before and who we quote often uh, because he writes so prolifically. Do you ever feel like you don't do much in your life when you see how much stuff Ed Stetzer produces during the course of a weekend? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't understand how it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, does he have a genie or something? How does that, how is it possible? I think there's multiple people named Ed Stetzer who are just doing stuff. <laughs> that makes so he wrote this. Uh, The pivot in our mission, find the evangelism style that excites you. How can we create momentum for evangelism that will cause believers to engage? And so this gets a little bit. The reason I want to talk about this, because you and I started a discussion yesterday about kind of different styles of evangelism. We talked about apologetics and uh, what what we're kind of are bent and what we're kind of drawn to. Uh, And so he's going to pick up on that here. Uh, and he talks about, um, let me read this. Uh, he says, I want to look specifically at ways you might share the gospel in your community. Let's be honest. For a lot of Christians, evangelism is more like kale than comfort food. He's just talked about food uh, choices up, up above here. How can we create momentum for evangelism that will cause believers to engage He says, we do so by looking at ways that fit our people and their gifts and abilities. In a conversation with Rick Warren some time ago, he observed the biblical truth in John 14, 6, that there's only one way to come to the Father, and that's through Jesus. But then he added, but there are a lot of ways to Jesus. People come to Christ for different reasons. Some come out of fear. Some come out of question. Some come out of hunger. Some come out of pain. Some come out of suffering. Some come out of guilt or worry or boredom or bitterness. He says Rick's fun point is a fundamental one in evangelism. Start where people are and take them to Jesus. But that doesn't only apply to the unchurched. We also take believers where they are and help them take the gospel to unbelievers. And then he's going to talk about how we do this. What do you think about his general premise, though, and Rick Warren's quote there, 
that there's different, not just evangelistic styles and also different reasons that we come to Christ, but that we should encourage people towards the things that they're most drawn to in terms of evangelism. I mean, I think Jesus did that. So I'm a fan. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's sort of in line a little bit with uh, what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with Scott McKnight's atonement theories example. He was talking about them being mm. like like golf clubs in a golf bag. So a lot of people are just running around with one club expecting it to do everything. He said the problem is gospels don't actually just present one club. There's all sorts of different imagery. And so in his brilliant book, Community Called Atonement, he even unpacks a little bit further, not just the, the theories themselves, but like how they appeal to certain stages of life or certain wirings. You know, if, if it's shame that you're struggling with or if it's uh, just a lostness, if it's anger, you know, they, these atonement theories speak in different ways. And I think that's kind of what Stetzer and Warren are getting after here is that people are complex and they're wired different ways. And I think it sometimes shows a real insensitivity, probably not intentionally so, when we just kind of stick with one club, so to speak. I mean, we shouldn't be yeah. clubbing people in general, just as a <laughs> just we as get the a, imagery as a missiology, <laughs> right? Um, but I think it is not totally dissimilar from a lot of the love language conversation. A lot of times, we love people the way that we want to be loved, not realizing, like, oh, I'm a words of affirmation guy, but my wife is quality time. So if I just keep throwing words at her. She might appreciate them, but it's not like filling up her tank. In the same way with evangelism, I think being mindful of where people are at does require more work, obviously, Um, requires more nuance. But I think it's I think it's a better way in general to go about it. How would you describe some people out there might be like, man, I don't even know what the different quote unquote styles of evangelism look like. I've only been taught. Right. Like I got to go up to my friend and just tell them the Roman road or tell them, you know, the four spiritual laws or whatever else. How would you describe for somebody kind of the more nuanced styles of evangelism? Well, he, he lays some out that are really helpful. Again, this is on our Facebook page, the common good radio show, but he talks about um, acts of kindness or service using social media, using your interests for the gospel. Uh, And uh, again, maybe somebody, again, he unpacks them a little more thoroughly than we have time to do right now. But I think, you know, you and I have talked a couple of times how we were raised in an environment where it was like, take this clipboard, go to the mall, or in your case, go to the beach, right? and just ask people if they were to die right now, do they know where they're going? Um, and again, I, I'm grateful for the tradition I was raised in and the education that I got and all, all of that. But that, you know, as a kid, made me cringe. I was like, I don't ever want to do this ever again. And I felt broken. And it wasn't really until somebody kind of unpack some of what Stets are saying here that I realized like, Oh man, God's wired me in a unique way and other people in unique ways. And to like lean into that doesn't necessarily mean that I won't ever have to do something I'm not comfortable with. Cause I think that's, that's right. a part of it, but yeah, you, you get, you just get a little more comfortable in your own skin and to evangelize in a way that feels like it has authenticity and integrity, I think is really, really important. Stetzer ends the article this way. He says, when the church has been most focused on reaching people, uh, that's when the church has been most creative. George Whitfield stepped into the fields to preach the gospel and saw multitudes follow Christ. John Wesley took the idea of societies in his day to create an organizational approach that became the Methodist movement. People reaching hippies in the Jesus People movement started coffee houses as a safe place for marginalized youth to hear the gospel. And I love how he ends here. He says, let's be focused on the gospel and use our creativity for Christ. What a great call. Let's be focused on the gospel and use our creativity for Christ. 
Uh, we'd love to hear what you've got to think. You can see this at our Facebook page. Uh, would love to know what you think about having different styles of evangelism. Coming up next, I'm going to give Ian a little quiz that I read in the New York Post and see how he does. So we're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Happy Friday and welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Hope you're doing well. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And we've got a podcast. That podcast can be found wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, you know, I like to listen to The Common Good, Ian, when I'm mowing the lawn. Just, you know, just out there thinking about the better, bigger things of the world. Is that and, true? Uh, do you actually listen when you mow the lawn? I do not listen to our podcast while I mow the lawn, but... <laughs> I just, just I want to be clear. <laughs> I listen to podcasts. Oh, and I, I have okay. I have listened to our podcast, but uh, yeah. But we would love for you to subscribe and to rate and review. And uh, grateful for those of you who do podcasts. So, all right. I told you I was going to start you with a quiz. This is no deeper meaning. It literally, I read it and I went, okay. I, it's like the Family Feud. <laughs> so, this is the four. Highest grossing restaurant chains in the United States of America. Number seven moved up to number two this year. And the top three then, or number one, three, and four remain the same. Are you ready? I want to see if you could guess. They're all fast food restaurants. Top four, highest grossing. Uh, Number one is by a lot, but then two, three, and four. I want to see if you can get them. Oh, I have to guess all four? Let's see how well you do. Okay, so... My guess is that Chick-fil-A is in there because you're excited about talking about this. <laughs> okay. I'm, that, not, I'm excited for Chick-fil-A. Is, uh, that, but is that accurate, though? Chick-fil-A is the one that moved from seventh to second this year. Yes, it is. Wow, making that's remarkable. Okay. $11.3 billion in 2019. Wow. That's amazing. So, yes. I, I've learned, number two. More, I've learned more about them, too, the last couple of years. Uh, our good friends, the Witzels, actually, are moving from Chicagoland to Michigan to launch, to launch, to plant, to <laughs> start open yes. their own Chick-fil-A. And, man, I've, been, I've right? been, yeah, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about them. I've been really impressed. Okay, so that's number two. I'm assuming McDonald's is number one. Yeah, the difference between McDonald's and Chick-fil-A is $40.4 billion down to $11.3 billion. So, yes, McDonald's is number one. <laughs> cow. All right. So then I would have to guess. Two and three and four. Three. Taco Bell and Burger King. Stop. Did you see this article? You drilled that. That was impressive. Uh, for real? Wow. I would not have guessed Taco Bell, but you got them in order. It goes McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, Taco Bell, Burger King. I am impressed. You know your fast food, man. Oh, dude, with the legalization of marijuana, too, Taco Bell stock is only going to go up. <laughs> I wrong? wouldn't know. <laughs> am I wrong? I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'm impressed. You deserve some sort of prize. You deserve something because uh, I would not have guessed those last two, but well done. Well done. And, you know, the Jesus chicken went from seven to two. There's a revival going on in our country right now. <laughs> <laughs> a chicken revival. Mm-mm-mm. Watch out, McDonald's. It's coming for you. <laughs> uh, just imagine if Chick-fil-A was open on Sunday and we'd be going. Okay. All right. At NBC News. 
shift shifting gears here. Coronavirus yeah. has lifted the work from home stigma. How will that shape the future? One expert said the views around work from home have completely changed. So before getting into the article at all, uh, did you feel like before all this happened that there were there was some sort of stigma? Either did you have a stigma for people or just towards our culture, towards people who work from home? What was that stigma? Do you think what do you think it is? Oh, that's an interesting question. It's I mean, maybe this is a generational thing. I have a yeah. number of friends who are like touring musicians and also graphic designers and oh, wow. they get to travel all over the world. And whenever they're not playing or writing music, they just have to find, you know, a Wi-Fi signal somewhere or get a hotspot right. and they're doing their design work. And so my wife and I both have kind of secretly for a long time sort of looked at that and thought, man, that you're living the dream there. Yeah. The difference for me is I just I like the local church too much. Like I just like it would never work for me to just be like, oh, I work for my RV. I just I love being rooted like in a localized community, but I, yeah, I don't, I haven't had much stigma at all for people that work from, I think, I think that's awesome. I say, I say good on you. If you can figure that out, do it. I Have you found there to be like a disparaging stigma for people that work at home? I think, uh, you know what? I do think that uh, early on, uh, before this pandemic, um, there were sometimes when you'd see, let's say that man or woman who's in sales working from home, you know, but they're, uh, you know, constantly walk, you know, they're walking to get their kids all the time or they're out back doing this kind of with some flexibility. You always did have that thought a little bit of like, what are they doing? Like, what do they do? You know, really? And I think now that we've all done this so much. Like you're like, oh, no, in fact, some ways it's harder to work from home. But, man, if you could pull it off, absolutely. I think it's been a, it wasn't a stigma as much as this new reality for the majority of us now working from home uh, has been a little bit of an eye opening experience. And um, see that going like, OK, I totally see it. I read in this article, it said Twitter has told their people to work from home for perpetuity, it says now. Wow. Um, and so they, they just came out with that on Tuesday. It says Twitter told its employees that many of them will be allowed to work from home in perpetuity, even after the pandemic ends. The move signals a growing shift in attitudes in certain industries towards remote working, a mm. change that could have lasting implications. Uh, they said there's now this explosion of working from home in part now because we've all tried it. We've got it up and running and invested our time and energy into it and it said it will end up being the new norm and that's a big step two to three times as much home working as we previously have done before i know there's a guy you know anecdotally there's a guy who lives up the street from us uh who commutes as long as i known him he commutes every day uh to the city and back uh and he just said through this, he's learned, I don't need to do that anymore. And he's going to transition how, for good to just keep doing the exact same job, but from home. And I, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of people who fall under that umbrella. Yeah. What implications do you think that will have in terms of, I mean, there's some obvious ones like travel and emissions and expenditures, but are there other like social implications that you think that we'll see as a result of this of more people? And I have no idea what the percentage will actually be, but more people remaining at home or working from home. What do you, what do you think that'll look like? This is where it gets weird. Cause you and I work in, in churches, which are naturally built, you know, upon community and social, Sup- like supernaturally built. 
And so <laughs> I didn't, the, the sign of a good joke is I didn't get that at first. I was like, oh, wait, I see what he did. Um, you know, like for me, I, I can run, I can do my job from home. It's working fine over Zoom, but there's something that's been lost by us not all being together. Like there feels right. like a, a detriment, but not all jobs work that way, right? If, right? if some jobs, it's just about what can you sell and it's the bottom line and you could do it easily from home, then I can totally get it. Uh, for me, I don't think that necessarily, I would think you agree with this, churches I wouldn't put under this umbrella where it's like, ah, it doesn't matter if you're home or not. Now, maybe you could do more from home, uh, but I don't think it's kind of like, yeah, you know, they both kind of work the same. Yeah, we and we've shared about this before, too. Well before any of this, by the way, we did an article where the guy's premise was, and the future of the church is purely digital, so get over it. Yeah. And you and I, you and I both kind of laid into it a little bit. I don't think that's true. I think there probably is a lot that we could do, but that's the other thing. When you talk about could, you, you're talking strictly about output. Like, can I still do this job from home? Yes. Is it? Yes. Do you lose something though by not being in the same space with people? Yes. Does it make you worse at your job? Maybe not. But there is some intangibles. Because life is not purely utilitarian. There is something right. like, man, I'm glad that I got to have a quick conversation with my buddy Jeff because we were in the office at the same time. And that didn't make my job any more efficient or less efficient. It was just nice to have an, a conversation with a person. So, yeah, I'll be curious to see in the coming months and years how this all plays out. Absolutely. It's, it's part of that new normal that we've been talking about day in and day out. So maybe you're doing it and we'd love to hear how that's going for you. You can uh, comment on this article up at our Facebook page. Well, one more hour to go in the week. We are glad that you are joining us. Uh, I, I should clarify one more hour for our show, not just in the week, but in our show. Mm, we are glad that you are joining us. Uh, you're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about rethinking business as ministry and then how the church can't let the coronavirus debate divide us. We're going to talk about those and more next here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today. Uh, the sky is blue. The sun is out. We are glad to have you uh, with us today. Uh, as always, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Common Good Talk. Find us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we are really grateful to those in our podcast community who, uh, listen, we've been hearing that more and more people, as you're not in the car and not driving, are listening by podcast. So go ahead and share it with others. And uh, thank you for those of you that do listen to the podcast. Before we jump into this article, uh, about rethinking business and ministry. Let me remind you that during the coronavirus pandemic, we do know that there are many businesses that have had to close their doors and reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. If that's you, if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form that you'll find there, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. Uh, there's no catch to it. 
So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Hopefully that will be a help for you. Well, over at Christianity Today, uh, they posted an article uh, called Rethinking Business and Ministry. How are you spending your 90,000 hours written by Mike uh, Mike Shero? Ian, what's going on in this article? I have no idea. I'm just kidding. Let me um, <laughs> let me start, actually, because his his introduction has like a it's a wonderful turn. He, he says in January 2020, 3000 of the most powerful world leaders in business, academics and social change met for the annual World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The theme was stakeholders for a cohesive and sustainable world. These thought leaders acknowledge their roles, not just as shareholders, but as stakeholders capable of facilitating significant change and shaping the future. Together, these global world changers wrestled with questions of corporate virtue. What does a business owe to its community, its country, and the world at large? What does it mean for a business to not just do good, but be good? What would such aspiration require? The leaders of the forum are taking their cue from an international uh, conversation that has grown into a full-fledged movement. Millennials and Generation Z employees see themselves as a part of a purpose economy. This generation of workers expects the work that they do to reflect something significant about who they are. And further, they expect the companies they work for to be about more than making money. This kind of moral buy-in has the potential to energize world markets and revolutionize the way we live. It can also, unfortunately, create a culture where workers are wholly invested in the work until they can't keep going anymore. They burn out. There is no objective benchmark for progress when your goal is to change the world. So so people spend themselves and then they give up. That is unless Jesus gets involved. So I'll, mm. I'll stop there. Uh, where do you think that he's going to go following that lead in? Oh, that's interesting. I would think he's going to try to talk uh, specifically about how business leaders like this can merge and actually pull this kind of thing off that they want to do, right? Change the world or do good and be good. He's going to give some practical uh, tips to that. Am I right? Am I on? Yeah, sort of. I think you're you're in the right direction. His general premise is a good one, and it's one that um, we've maybe mentioned but not gone full tilt is actually uh, an advertisement on this station where it talks about the root word the hebrew root word for work and worship is the same word it's avoda and uh, it shows up like almost 300 times in the old testament i think and it's translated either work worship or serve and it's sort of showing this mm. pretty intentional pretty unique blending of this idea where in a lot of like greek or modern thought we've we've dissected and divorced work and worship as two totally separate entities to the point where like, yeah. I'm sure as a pastor, you've heard this before where people say things like, Hey, I think I want to quit my job and go into ministry. I'm like, Hey, that, that's right. That might be a good call. But what if I told you that your work is ministry that you have, you have an in, you have an environment, you have a sphere of influence that, that me as a pastor won't ever have. And to help people see whatever environment they're in as an opportunity to be on mission, I think is really, really important. And it's easy to overlook, especially if yeah. you know no one's ever presented that as a possibility, you know? Oh, totally. I think uh, we've all had that thought. I mean, even when I was thinking in college, what do I want to do? Uh, it was, you know, people were either going into business to make money or whatever, or they were going into ministry. There was this great dichotomy 
and, and it is interesting that some of the leaders are sitting because, you know, in the mid 80s, 90s, right? When the movie Wall Street comes out, greed is good. Just make as much money as you can. Like that was the purpose of business. And now almost he, this article says now with like kind of millennials leading the charge from from the back going kind of pushing their bosses and their businesses going, we want to be the, about more than just money. Uh, and then for the Christian business leader, I think the opportunity is huge. Uh, and and to see your own business uh, or the business that you're a part of as ministry, I think, changes everything. I think it, it is really an important kind of mind shift to have. Well, I'm the linchpin here, and you mentioned the number, which is actually kind of staggering. He says, we spend 90,000 hours of our adult lives at work. That's a lot that's of time crazy. to spend not abiding with Christ, hoping just not to mess up. On the flip side, that's an incredible amount of time to spend in ministry with people who might not otherwise be open to hearing the gospel. So he's really trying to elevate the workspace, right? Which I think is, again, is going to look very, very different in the coming months and years because of everything that we were just talking about in the last segment. But I think it's it's interesting. He follows it up by saying, when faith and work go hand in hand in in a gospel-shaped business model, it becomes easier to find the community we're wired for. It breaks down the myth of being alone in the work of building the kingdom. Leadership can certainly be lonely, but it doesn't have to be that way. When business leaders ask what honors God in their companies, it can help every employee see the bigger picture, which I think is what leaders ultimately want to do is to help their team, to help their employees see the bigger picture. Uh, It is an important note, though, what he said earlier about like, yeah, but that's why I think we see so much burnout is because we elevate the importance of like vocational ministry to its to the nth degree. Right. Like souls are at stake. We work in, you know, in the landscape of eternity. So, of course, I'm going to put in 70, 80, 90 hours a week because what I'm doing is is so critical. And I think that's probably part of why we see this perpetual burnout from a lot of a lot of pastors and leaders. Mm, He does say God's in the people business, and so is every business. This should compel us to build better businesses that have the capacity to take better care of people and make an eternal impact. How do you think you and I are both pastors? So let's take this from a pastoral end. How either have you or how do you think we can do a good job helping our people who then go out into the business world, you know, for their, you know, 50, 60 hours that coming week? How can we help people? Uh, have a mindset of towards their businesses, whether they lead them or just, you know, are workers in a business to see it as ministry. How could we help build that worldview for people? It's a good question. I, I think it has to be more than just simply telling them. And it has to go deeper than just simply, hey, hey, did you know that wherever you're at, God has you there on purpose? I think it yeah. does require an elevating of how we talk about things like mission. Um, I heard, and he was being a little cheeky, but somebody recently said, if you've ever left your house, you've been on a mission trip, like mm-hmm. <laughs> the notion that like everything that we do is mission, which I think a lack of understanding that is rooted in this idea that there is some kind of sacred secular divide that I have like my church people. And then I have like the rest of my life. I have my holy activities and then like the rest of my you know world and activities that God doesn't really care about. I think you have to go that far back because it's not just about people aren't like one inspirational sermon away from really, really mm-hmm. believing that like, oh, their workplace is also a place of ministry. You have to help people see that, man, kingdom come to earth, that that, that is a, a picture that's a microcosm of seeing all that we do as sacred and charged with God's presence. And if we don't believe that, then we're never actually going to believe that our workplaces are redeemable or that 
my activity or my lunch with this person or my coffee with that person. We're never going to see yeah. any of that as mission because we just, we, we, we still think it's separated. And I think that's, that's the starting point for the hard work of understanding that I think begins. Mm. That's a great call. The sake, the sacred secular divide and what effect does that have on us? I think that's a, that's a wonderful call. Well, coming up next, uh, an article of the gospel coalition that is very timely. Uh, Brett McCracken writes church, uh, don't let the coronavirus divide you. We're going to talk about that article next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on this Friday afternoon. Uh, as always, find us uh, on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. Uh, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate and review. And uh, before we jump into what I think is a really uh, pressing and important discussion that, that we need to be having as pastors and as churches. Before we do that, uh, I, I do want to hear from Ian about Thrivent. OK, so you can learn a little more at Thrivent.com if you like also. I know a bunch of you are looking maybe a career change. Thrivent.com slash careers is where to go. It's a wonderful Fortune 500 non-for-profit. They've been around for more than 100 years. I've been a member for seven or eight, and I've loved it. I've learned more about money and generosity in those seven or eight years than maybe the rest of my life, to be honest. They're also hosting a bunch of really helpful, wonderful webinars uh, while we're all trying to navigate this weird season we're in. So you can learn more by liking their Facebook page. We're posting a bunch of stuff on our Facebook page. You can go to Thrivent.com or Thrivent.com slash Chicagoland. I also mention action teams a lot. If you want to learn more about how brilliant of, a, of an initiative this is, go to Thrivent.com slash action teams and just read like the one page description there. I'm, I'm convinced it'll blow your mind. Like it is incredible what they're doing through their members, through their networks. And uh, I can't encourage you enough to check them out. Absolutely thrive and say great organization that we'd love for you to, to check out. Well, Brett McCracken at uh, Gospel Coalition wrote, Church, don't let the coronavirus divide you. This is something that, man, I just, I, I have been worried about and have felt. So let me just read his introduction uh, and then we'll talk about it. He says, for church leaders and elder boards everywhere, the last few months have presented a near constant array of complex challenges related to shepherding a church during the COVID-19 pandemic. The latest complex challenge is perhaps the trickiest yet, how to prudently resume in-person gatherings. But as if logistical details weren't challenging enough, how to maintain social distance, limit crowd size, whether or not to require masks, sing or not sing, what to do with children, and so on, the whole conversation is fraught with potential for division. If a congregation, and within it, a leadership team, is at all a microcosm of our larger society, it will likely contain a broad assortment of strongly held convictions. Some will be eager to meet in person and impatient to wait much longer to get back to normal. Others will insist it's unwise to meet at all until there's a vaccine. Plenty will fall somewhere in between. In such a precarious and polarizing environment, how can churches move forward in beautiful unity rather than ugly division? It won't be easy, but by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit working to unify us in ways our flesh resists, the opportunity is there for us to be a countercultural model for the rest of the world. So, Ian, let me ask you that question that he asks. In such precarious times, how can churches move forward in beautiful unity rather than ugly division? I mean, I don't think 
there's any real unity without humility, to be honest. I think um, what's tricky is for a lot of people, and I would say myself included for a long time, unity is like a nice construct, but something really difficult to really actually live out because, mm. you know, when you, as long as things are like hypothetical, like, oh, we should be unified and not argue about these really obscure points of doctrine. And everyone goes, yeah, you're right. Or uh, we shouldn't argue about, you know, decisions that the government's making because none of us are in government work. So, OK, yeah, sure. But because of, you know, this particular conversation around the pandemic, it's so personal and so close to home and everyone's feeling very strongly about it in one way, shape or form, bringing all of that, which is very understandable to the table is I think a recipe for disunity and to work toward unity, even, and especially when the person on the other side of the table is never going to agree with you is really super tricky. And without humility, I think we're just, we're going to be more and more inclined to kind of be at each other's throats. And it is, it is tough, especially when, you know, it's matters of health. And I think that's understandably, again, why people uh, get so hot under the collar talking about it. But there is, and I think McCracken's kind of getting to this. It is, it is all the more important than for the church to model the way forward for unity in a way that, you know, will probably likely baffle the rest of the world, to be honest. That's well put. I, I, and this is not theoretical, right? Like this is a real issue facing the church. I mean, I think, you know, I hear from people in our church very different views and, and right. their people are starting to get really passionate about these views about opening up, not opening up the government. What's the government's role in this? Other states doing it. You know, the people are really passionate. And for some people, for a lot of people, they're really passionate about like it feels like church is at the center of that. Right. Should the church be right. reopened or whatever else? Uh, and those passions are only going to grow. And the question is. What happens when it's within our church, the people picking at each other and going at each other? And so uh, McCracken is going to give four countercultural reactions that you just touched on really well. In fact, one of them, I will give you a hint, is the one you just brought up. He says uh, that we can have a countercultural model for the rest of the world in a couple different ways. Let's work through these. The first one, he says, the church can have countercultural sacrifice. At a time when self-idolatry is being exposed in ugly ways, the church has an opportunity to model love that places the interest of others above self. For example, someone might find it personally difficult, even maddening to have to wear a mask during church and stay six feet away. You might think these precautions are a needless overreaction, but here's the thing. Even if it turns out you're right, can you not sacrifice your ideal for a season out of love for others who believe mm. the precautions are necessary? That's good. Even if you personally think it's silly or even cowardly for someone to stay at home, even after the church is open again on Sundays, can you not heed Paul's wisdom in Romans 14? Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, mm. but rather decide never to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or first Corinthians eight, nine, be careful. However, that your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the week. And so he goes on to explain more. Uh, but uh, this concept of countercultural self-sacrifice uh, for one another, uh, this posture of sacrifice that he says at the end here, we all need to embrace that with gladness. Yeah. Let me just, I don't know how much time we have left. He talks also about yep. how important nuance is. And he yeah. says this, this one, I'm sure people might cheer on. He says, we live in an unnuanced age. The economic model mm-hmm. of the media built on clicks and views works against nuance. Advertisers know nuance doesn't sell. 
politicians know it too. We shouldn't be surprised by how rare it is for someone to hold humble, complicated, both and views in today's hyperpartisan media catechized world. But if churches are going to emerge from this crisis with unity and fellowship intact, we must embrace uh, the countercultural path of nuance. It's the path that avoids all caps hysteria <laughs> of every extreme sort, recognizing that the truth is rarely as simple and shrill as Twitter would have us think. It's the path that prizes both courage and prudence and avoids both Pollyannish and doomsday responses. It means we can be skeptical of some aspects of the lockdown without resorting to outrageous conspiracy theories, and we can honor governing authorities, Romans 13, while engaging them in civil pushback when necessary. Countercultural nuance avoids thinking the worst of people and concedes that the other side of a debate is sometimes right, just as we are sometimes wrong. Nuance often results when humility and patience combine. And then let me just, Mm -hmm. if you'll let me, he ends it brilliantly. He says, there are some things Christians should not be nuanced about, of course. And one of those is our rugged commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that scripture commands. What Paul urges the Ephesian church, therefore, should be equally urgent for us today. And then he quotes from Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I would end mic drop. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's really good. Really well written. The other two, Ian already touched on countercultural humility. And then there's one about patience, but that one about nuance, man, that's really good. That's Brett McCracken, senior editor at the gospel coalition church. I think this is a really important idea about uh, unity and disunity and division within the church. Uh, as we head into an election season, as everyone gets emotional over uh, opening up and not opening up and everything COVID-19 related, this is going to be a huge conversation for the church going forward. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to read a poem. I'm going to have Ian read a poem because he's really good at reading poems, something that I found I thought would be a great way for us to end our week here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk, online 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, as we head into the weekend here, Ian, I'm curious, any any big plans for the Simpkins family? Anything out of the ordinary or just uh, more staying at home? Well, we have moved date night to Saturday night. So oh, you have? Uh-huh. Yeah. Because anytime that I, like I'm teaching this weekend, and so I'm going in to record on Saturday morning. And so sometimes it's a little stressful leading up to that if there are any tweaks or things I need to change. And it, I didn't feel, it didn't feel right for me to like have my mind somewhere else. So Saturday night, you know, that's now done. I can kind of with a, with a clear mind, clean conscience. So that's, that's been fun. So I'm, yeah, I'm really really looking forward to date night. Good, good. We got plans for my wife's birthday today. And then, oh, nice. uh, We're having a little socially distant uh, birthday celebration with some of her family tomorrow. So uh, yeah, hopefully it'll, hopefully the weather will hold and it will be a good time and uh, looking forward to the weekend. Well, before we head into the weekend, Uh, I found this poem somebody had posted, a friend of mine on Facebook, and I just thought it was so good uh, with all that we're going through and the way things have changed. It's a poem 
uh, written by a New York City Hope Church pastor by the name of Sarah uh, Burns or Bournes. Uh, and uh, I just thought it was really powerful. So, Ian, if you would, would you read this poem for us? Yes, I will. It's called Exposed. Here it goes. It says, we've all been exposed. Not necessarily to the virus, though maybe. Who knows? We've all been exposed by the virus. Corona is exposing us. Exposing our weak sides. Exposing our dark sides. Exposing what normally lies far beneath the surface of our souls, hidden by the invisible masks we wear. Now exposed by the paper masks we can't hide far enough behind. Corona is exposing our addiction to comfort. Our obsession with control. Our compulsion to hoard. Our protection of self. Corona is peeling back our layers, tearing down our walls, revealing our illusions, leveling our best laid plans. Corona is exposing the gods we worship, our health, our hurry, our sense of security, our favorite lies, our secret lusts, our misplaced trusts. Corona is calling everything into question. What is the church without a building? What is my worth without an income? How do we plan without certainty? How do we love despite risk? Corona is exposing me. My mindless numbing, my endless scrolling, my careless words, my fragile nerves. We've all been exposed. Our junk laid bare, our fears made known, the band-aid torn, the masquerade done. So what now? What's left? Clean hands, clear eyes, tender hearts. What Corona reveals, God can heal. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Hmm. I, when I read that this morning, I thought it touched on so many powerful things about what the coronavirus is revealing in us, probably individually, as churches, as a, as a culture. Uh, which part of that, thank you for reading that, which part of that uh, kind of, did any of that kind of jump out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's not only clever, like it's well written, um, but what I do, I appreciate her getting personal and vulnerable. Like it's one thing, and we've read a few of those on the show, actually, where it's sort of like more of a commentary on how we're all sort of dealing with this. But when she talks about Corona exposing me, my mindless numbing, my endless scrolling, my careless words, my fragile nerves. Like I really appreciated that part, not only because it was vulnerable, but there's certainly things that I can relate to. Like I've done those things and how, you know, how many times have you and I both joked about like pulling out our phones when we, you know, weren't even thinking about it or said things to our spouse, our kids, because we're a little more stressed than we usually are. And yeah, I, I appreciated not only just the, the poetry and cadence, the general posture of the whole thing, but like her willingness to also just be vulnerable and transparent about her own struggle. I think that's, I think that's really good. How about you? Yeah, I thought that part where she really talked about what we would call our idols, right? Our addiction to comfort, our obsession with control, our compulsion to hoard, our protection of self. These kind of things that we kind of take for granted that have been lost right now. Uh, And then later on, she goes, literally, she says, exposing the gods we worship, our health, our hurry, our sense of security, our favorite lies, our secret lusts, our misplaced trust like we talk a lot about idols but man a lot of the uh, the things that we worship as a culture uh, i think that's what's causing so much angst for people about we got to get back we got to get back we got to get back because mm. 
uh, because it's so disconcerting to not have those things to hold on to, whether it be our our health, our money, our sense, whatever it is. Right. Uh, and, and so I think this poem does a great job with it. But I think what this last two months, nine weeks or whatever has done for a lot of us is it shined a light on uh, on the places where we do put our trust. Right. Like. Um, uh, uh, the places that we, that do cause us security or give us security. And I think to have the, there's not many times in our culture where those things are taken away. And so to have some of those taken away, even if your health is good, I think has been, uh, really, uh, disconcerting and, and eye opening, I think for me and probably for a lot of us. Do you think that the vast majority of people, at least at some point, will use this season for introspection or like what ratio or percentage do you think won't be affected by this once we're all back to normal? Like they'll just, I mean, are you hopeful that this season will cause some of this kind of reflection, this kind of honesty, this kind of soul searching, or are you, are you not buying it that it's going to have any kind of like lasting impact? (laughs) I hope so, man. I hope so. Uh, but, uh, I have my doubts. I, you know, even again, the news isn't always a good indication of everything exactly what's going on. But like, you know, you, you saw in Wisconsin where the Supreme Court overturned the state home order, and immediately there were full bars everywhere. <laughs> right, <laughs> You're just like, right. come on, people, come on. Uh, but I would like to think on these bigger questions uh, that that we as individuals and as churches and as families we will be reminded of uh, of what we were taught in this. But I know it's getting old to kind of go back to 9-11. But, you know, after 9-11, if you remember, uh, and it's different, but in some ways the same, There, we were a different culture. Uh, but within months to a year, we'd gone back to where we were. But, you know, in the way that this has affected everybody, and uh, it's brought fear to everybody on some level. I hope that we have changes. I hope that we as a culture are introspective in this and make some changes. But I don't know. I, I'm uh, I, I, in some ways, some of the push that I see from people to get back to normal now causes me to go. Yeah, we're probably just going to go back to how we were. But I don't know. How about you? What do you think is going to be the result of all of this? I mean, I don't think it's even realistic to expect either end of the extremes that one will be unaffected altogether or two that we're going to, we're going to live cognizant of this for the rest of our lives. I don't think either of those is necessarily healthy or viable. Uh, My guess is though, some of these changes will be intentional. Mm. Others will be much more passive. They'll be um, subconscious. They'll be more societal They'll be more subtle. Like, you know, you, you bring up the 9-11 example, and the thing that everyone always goes to is how much air travel has changed. Well, that's like a very mm-hmm. concrete, specific thing to point to, like, oh, it was like this. Now it's like this. I think in this current moment and in the coming months and years, I think it's going to be way more subtle. There'll obviously be some much more black and white in your face, like, wow, that's way different. But I think if I fast forward five years out from now, I think there's going to be more sweeping but subtle types of shifts that have happened both in our mindset, but also in our culture. And again, that depends on you know where you live at the time. But I think Agreed. we'll have moments and flashes of like, oh, this wasn't always this way. And I think that will cause a certain level of introspection that I'm, I'm hoping will point us towards, you know, greater good, maybe greater common good. 
<laughs> I hope so as well. So you can read that poem on our, on our Facebook page. Uh, I just thought it was well written and brought up some of the things that I think kind of are at the core of how are we going to process this now and going forward. Well, it's time to end the week and end this show the way that we end every show. Interweb insanity, crazy stories from the Internet found by our executive producer, Keith Conrad. That is coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a good Friday. You can continue uh, kind of looking at the at the stories we've discussed, the articles we've read. You can do that on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, if you've at all been a listener of our show over the past, I don't know, 15, 16 months that we've been doing this show, you know that we end every show the same way with something we call interweb insanity where our executive producer, Keith Conrad, finds uh, just outlandish stories from the Internet. We read them sight unseen and uh, take our jobs uh, into our hands with each one of these. So, Ian, why don't you read the first one? Do you remember when we used to do this twice a show? I do. I do. <laughs> what were we thinking? Why? <laughs> no. No, that was back when we you could tell us to do anything. We're like, okay. <laughs> Probably not wise for us to do this once a show, but twice a show. It's a miracle that any of you stuck with us this long. I just want to say that. If you powered through that yes. era of our show, we are so grateful for your long-suffering and your patience. Long-suffering is the right word. <laughs> All right. So this first one is out of Scotland. Bull scratching itself on utility pole knocks out power to 700 homes. Oh, man. A bull attempting to alleviate an itchy burn using utility pole ended up knocking down the electricity for more than 700 homes in a Scottish town, which is exactly what I just read. Hazel Loughton posted an apology to a Facebook group after her four-year-old bull, Ron, bull's name is Ron, Ron. <laughs> rubbed up against utility pole and ended up knocking the transformer box to the ground. Our bull, Ron, would like to apologize to everyone in Chapeltown in Strathaven, for causing last night's power cut to over 700 homes. He had an itchy burn, so he scratched it on the electricity pole and knocked the transformer box off. Don't kid yourself, Jimmy. If a cow ever got the chance, he'd eat you and everyone you care about. Uh, next one, our friends from Florida. They never have disappointed us in the show. They disappoint Woman. us all the time. Every day. Woman arrested for battering husband with Mother's Day bouquet. Uh, a Florida woman battered her husband with a bouquet of Mother's Day flowers during a confrontation early yesterday in the couple's home. Investigators say that Sandra K. Webb, age 32, and her spouse were in their Tampa area residence when matters turned physical around 1230 a.m. Webb uh, was upset at the victim because he bought her children flowers to give her for Mother's Day. This made the defendant angry. Webb allegedly threw the flowers at the victim while he was in bed and struck him with the bouquet. Webb is also accused of spitting on her husband's arm and chest. After being read her rights, Webb reportedly admitted to the police that she threw the flowers, but she denied the spitting. She's terrifying. Sounds about right. Yep. Want to go to Colorado? I do. Let's do it. Beer Company's clone machine allows video chatters to sneak away unnoticed. <laughs> it's funny. 
The makers of Coors Light Beer unveiled a new service for the coronavirus era, a clone machine to allow video conference attendees to leave their cameras without being missed. The Coors Light clone machine creates a 30-second video loop of the user that can then be activated during a video chat to give the user just enough time to sneak in a trip to the fridge for a cold beer. So again, they're like encouraging like, hey, you should be drinking beer during your business meeting, which is not a great idea. It says a hassle-free interface will allow you to record and save a video of yourself nodding along politely with the occasional smile while your boss talks about the latest budget reports or your friend wants to put her new baby on to talk for the millionth time. Don't worry, I have a plan. First, I hook this common VCR into the security camera system like so. Then I insert this old videotape of us working on a continuous loop. I saw this in a movie about a bus that had to speed around the city, keeping its speed over 50. And if its speed dropped, it would explode. I think it was called the bus that couldn't slow down. That's where we've come to a Zoom now. That is where we are at. Uh... Next one's out of England. Charity seeks volunteers to walk on Lego bricks. <laughs> no, thank you. British charity is seeking volunteers willing to walk barefoot over Lego bricks to raise money for children with disabilities. Codwell Children, a charity providing practical and emotional support to children with disabilities and their families, said it's seeking volunteers to participate from their own homes in the May 31st Lego Walk. The charity teamed with the group UK Firewalks to create pre-recorded instructional videos to show the volunteers how to safely walk across a pile of Lego bricks. Nearly everybody has had that experience of standing on a little plastic block of Lego, and it can really hurt. Son of a... That's going to leave a mark. Why do do we still do this segment? (laughs) Just wait for the next one. Uh, South Carolina restaurant using blow-up dolls to enforce social distancing. (laughs) That's a really frightening photo. Jeez, Louise. That is really bad. Golly. How would you describe that, Brian? Uh, lifeless. Uh, creepy. <laughs> Life- yeah. Lifeless was the first one you went with. All right. Yeah. The South Carolina restaurant partially reopening for dining customers is keeping the tables compliant with social distancing guidelines by filling the dining room with blow-up dolls. The open hearth restaurant in Taylor's closed to uh, closed its dining room due to COVID-19 pandemic March 17th and was allowed to reopen this week with a reduced capacity and a requirement that customers are seated six feet apart. The owners of the eatery, Paula Star Malejes, and her husband, Jimmy, said they didn't want the restaurant to look empty when customers came to eat. So instead, they wanted creepy, terrifying blow-up dolls staring at them. Uh, that's not what they said. <laughs> instead of using scary yellow tape or roping off empty tables, I thought, we're going to make the restaurant look full. Hayes said she ordered the G-rated kind of inflatable dolls from Amazon. Why did she include that? <laughs> Dressed them up like customers and seated them at tables that would be off-limits to diners. My grandson told me they look kind of creepy, and I would agree with that grandson. But I think when people walk in, they're going to laugh. All right. Well, we're ending with Blow Up Dolls in South Carolina. It's been a good week, man. <laughs> the G-rated kind, though. The G-rated kind. Well, we're glad that you joined us. One more time, a happy birthday to my lovely wife, Carrie. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to celebrate this weekend. Hope you have a nice weekend as well, man. Uh, we'll Hopefully, uh, we'll get back together on Monday. So uh, we'd love to have you join us on Monday from 4 until 6. Thanks for listening today. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. <laughs> 